Revelation 21, please. Revelation 21. And let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Number one, if you were to take the time to assess how much water covers the current earth, it is around 70%. If you were to take the time and examine how much water is found in a typical person, if you are a man, it's around 60%. And if you are a woman, it's around 55%. So we are very much in need of water. But here, 21.1, John has seen a new heaven, singular. There are three heavens and a new earth. Now, this kind of knocks out the gap theory. Because if you hold to the gap theory, which I'm not particularly mad about, but if you do hold to the gap theory... This is somewhat of a problem for you. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, if that term for new heaven is in reference to, say, the first earth, or the first heaven, I should say, which is where we would expect to uh, be able to see from the earth, then, okay, fair enough. But if the new heaven found here in the singular is a description for the three heavens, which is more likely then like I say, it knocks out the gap theory. Let's keep reading on. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. John speaking, of course. For the first heaven, uh, consisting of all three parts of heaven, like the solar system, so on and so forth, and the first earth, which was given to Adam, back in Genesis chapter 1, to rule over, were passed away, literally melted away, evaporated, if you will. And there was no more sea, So John has been shown this great vision of an event which is still to occur. From the previous chapter, which we looked at over two Sundays, it ended on a very negative note. Like from 2015, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That, of course, is man's final abode if he dies without Christ. So from a negative to a positive, John is now speaking about what he is about to see. Let's keep reading on verse 2, and I'll come back and hopefully uh, explain these verses in a bit more detail. 21.2 And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Back to the same type of language from Revelation 19. The bride being the church and Christ being the groom. You have Jesus enjoying a wife being his church. You have Jehovah enjoying his wife being Israel. And here, New Jerusalem has finally arrived. If you think from 17 and 18, Babylon being ecclesiastical, Babylon being economical, if you think about Babylon the Great, this wicked, ostentatious system, very much uh, a bride or a false church for Satan, or if you think of that system, Babylon the Great being a city on on the seven hills, then you think of this place called New Jerusalem, this holy city coming down from God out of heaven. So you've got two cities. You've got Babylon, the great, the whore on the seven hills, and you've got New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So Satan has a church, if you will, and Jesus has a church. Satan's church is a city like Rome, for example, whereas Jesus has a church, has a city, being New Jerusalem. 
and it is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. As far as I can understand from scripture, no man, no woman has ever seen God the Father. Never mind what Joseph Smith said. If you take the time to read, I think it's First Timothy chapter 6 or Second Timothy chapter 6. No, it must be First Timothy chapter 6. It makes it very clear that no man has yet seen God the Father. Now, many times in the Old Testament, men and women would get a snapshot or a glimpse of a Christophany or a theophany. A Christophany is simply a description of God appearing in the flesh pre the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as I stand in this morning, I can't think of anyone in either testament that is yet seen God the Father. If you think of every account in the Old Testament where man came into the presence of deity, he or she would always be privileged or they would only be privileged to see Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh. But here, behold, the tabernacle, verse 3, of God is with men. No doubt in reference to God the Father. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them. And be their God. So John's goal. When he would uh, take the time to write Revelation. After being returned to the earth. Was to try and explain New Jerusalem. Being for the church. Which would come down out of heaven. No doubt the third heaven. And hover over the new earth. And his responsibility was to take the time and explain how New Jerusalem would be for the church and the new earth for the Jew, saved Jew. And sometimes it gets somewhat confusing when you try and work out how these two come together. But the great fact from verse 3 is God himself, God the Father, is going to dwell amongst his people. And also from Matthew chapter 5 we will see God, those of us which are pure in heart. Of course, we know from Jeremiah that our hearts are desperately wicked. So something has to take place. We have to be changed. For now we are born again. For now we are spiritually up in the third heaven, which will evaporate and uh, disappear, especially at the end of the millennium. Hence why Peter speaks about a new heaven and a new earth. Let's keep reading on, please. Much material to try and get through this morning. 21.4 And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. So for those of us which die saved, we are absent from the body, present with the Lord. We then get new bodies in the rapture. We appear at the judgment seats of the Lord. We are judged. And for some of us, we may get five crowns. Then we go to the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. We are then presented as a chaste bride, a chaste virgin to the Lamb. We are married to him. And then we have the thousand-year reign with the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a picture of a honeymoon, if you will. During the thousand-year honeymoon, the kings of the earth, which I'll get to shortly, will bring their gifts to the Lamb. It's like a marriage, if you think of people who are invited to a marriage, they bring wedding gifts to give to the bride and the groom. It's a sense, it's a picture of respect. I think of those Italian families back in the day when their 
daughters would marry wealthy Italian men and the bride's family and the groom's family would come together and spend a lot of time planning gifts. And for wealthy Italians, they would get properties, they would get keys to homes, they would get cars, they would get jewelry to allow the couple the best start in life. But the kings of the earth, those that get saved during the tribulation and go into the millennium and reproduce, which seems to be what will happen during the millennium, are going to come up to New Jerusalem. There is some debate as to whether or not they enter into New Jerusalem, but more likely they are on the outskirts of New Jerusalem and they bring their gifts, so on and so forth, to the Lamb and his wife. But verse 4, John is still thinking about those that have witnessed the loss of loved ones from the previous chapter. And like I say, when we get uh, raptured, we get new bodies and we are then glorified. So no tear as such is wiped away until 21 verse 4. Let's read it again. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Has been reference to the redeemed. He has no interest in the lost. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Very similar to Second Corinthians chapter 5, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, all things are passed away, all things have become new. But like I say, for those of us which are saved and living today, we still have our old natures, and every so often we allow our minds to go into reverse, and we think about what used to happen or what we were able to do before we were saved, some of those experiences that we can still recall and those bad decisions that we made after we got saved. And if you're not careful, that can pull you down. That can really cause you to become depressed and just unable to move forth. And that's why you need to renew your mind each and every day. But the promise has been made that once we arrive in eternity, once we are glorified, once we are in the presence of the Lamb, once we have been married to him, once we have enjoyed our honeymoon with him, then there is no more pain, no more sorrow, nothing negative any longer. It's time to worship the Lord. It's time to rejoice in the Lord. It's time to just be blown away with the majesty of the Lord. Verse 5, And he that sat upon a throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Very much a throwback to the new birth. Second Corinthians chapter 5 again. John wants to move us forward. He spent chapters 17, 18 and also 19 speaking about death, destruction and damnation. A very negative picture and something which we can't escape. Because most of the world are going to perish. Most of the world are going to live and die without Christ. In fact, just yesterday, I was doing some street work, and this guy walked over towards me. I would say he was 25, 26, and he had some CDs on him, and I knew exactly what he was trying to do. He was trying to sell his CDs, and I thought to myself, that could have been me, because before I was saved, I was a wannabe singer. I wanted to become the next great singer, and I was able to make some albums, and I watched this guy walking towards me, and I thought to myself, you know, that could have been me, like I say, chasing a dream, wanting recognition. And I offered him a tract and he said to me, no, thanks, bruv. I don't believe in God and carried on walking. And I thought, yep, that could have been me before I was saved. Very self-righteous. 
a typical Catholic doing my own thing. And I ask myself this, why am I saved and he isn't? Why did I get born again and he isn't born again? And perhaps will never get born again. I don't know. Never mind what the Calvinists say that God chose me before the world began. That sounds very great. And yet that is incorrect. If you read Romans 16, Paul lists a load of people. And he says, such and such was in Christ before me. Meaning such and such got saved before me. Nobody was saved before the foundation of the world. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. But the best you can get with that line of thinking is that in the mind of Christ, no doubt based on foreknowledge, no doubt based on middle knowledge, he knew those that would be saved, of course. But to get into uh, Calvinism is a waste of time. But this chap passed up the gospel, made no eye contact with me, incidentally, just carried on walking in a straight line. And I wasn't going to give him some uh, cliche like, well, God loves you anyway, or God believes in you anyway. I don't want to get down that I don't want to go down that route anymore I think when I first got saved I might have responded in such a way now I just leave people as they are behold 21 5 I make all things new and that also knocks out any reference to evolution and he said unto me right for these words are true and faithful inspiration and he said unto me it is done I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. It's a free gift. Don't pass it up. And yet most people pass it up. Most people think they're okay, like that chap yesterday, and yet he is on the verge of catastrophe. If he was to die, like now, or yesterday, he's over the age of accountability, he will go straight to hell first death not the second death of course and he won't get out but that's his choice of course we don't need to spend too much time pleading with people i don't like the idea of chasing people down the street and begging them to repent in fact i watched a preacher not very long ago uh give a very good message and at the end of the message he started to give the altar call and i have no major problem with such if it results in a person getting saved And I've noticed in these churches, mainly Baptist churches, that what seems to happen is the pianist starts to play. And the pianist plays and plays and plays. And the preacher is calling on sinners to come forth to repent, which again is all very well. I'm not against such. But is it really necessary for the pianist to keep on playing the same stanza like come as I am or just as I am or amazing grace? And the preacher is pleading with people to come forth. I don't find that in scripture. I don't find anybody in scripture using any kind of music to bring sinners to the saviour. And it's somewhat pitiful almost to watch these preachers almost pleading with people. Come to Jesus. Receive Jesus. Believe on Jesus. He died for you. Yes, he did. And yes, there is a love which is available for anyone who wants it. But let's not beg people. Quit the piano. Quit the music. It almost puts people in a trance-like state. In fact, Hitler was very good at doing that during the 1930s. Just watch any of his rallies. The music would be whipped up. People would get into some kind of hysteria. And it just changes their spirits. In fact, I remember before I was saved, going to a concert and watching this very well-known Canadian singer. I'd say there's probably 35,000 people present. I was around 19 at the time. And 
There was a warm-up act, which is very common if you've ever been to a concert. And the warm-up act was there to do just that, warm you up, prepare you for the main act. And they were pretty good. And after 25, 35, maybe 40 minutes thereabouts of them playing their hits, the main star arrived, the main act of the night. And we were cooking. I mean, those of us which were at such a concert in Wembley Arena in London were really ready to go. You know, we were whipped up into some kind of a frenzy. And I look at some of these preachers and it's very similar, very similar sort of thing. But here, 21.6, it is done. Very reminiscent of Jesus on the cross. It is done. It is finished. Mission accomplished. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. It's a free gift. Come and get it. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God. And he should be my son. Now I spent much time over the last, I think this is broadcast 37. So this will be week 37. This is month number eight. Trying to explain that to become an overcomer or to be an overcomer is very clearly explained to us from 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 4. To become an overcomer simply means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no works involved. I want to say this as well, that some of our dispensational brethren, some of the great dispensational brethren, and they are great, mighty men of God, have taught, and some still do, those that are still with us, that during the tribulation, man will be saved by faith and works. I don't know why they teach such a doctrine. I mean, man is no good. I wish people could get this into their heads, that man is no good, that we can't offer God anything. Your best works are nothing. Your righteousness, my righteousness, is as filthy rags. And yet, unfortunately, some dispensationalists believe that during the tribulation, man will be saved by faith and works. Completely incorrect. It's going to be grace from creation to Calvary. It's going to be grace from Calvary to the rapture. It's going to be grace from the rapture to the end of the tribulation and from the end of the tribulation to the end of the millennium and then we get into eternity which lord willing i will look at next week but i have to keep saying this because every so often people contact me to try and get me to become a full-blown dispensationalist i'm not interested in being such it's grace god's righteousness at christ's expense from the commencement to the final conclusion from the beginning to the end he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So at best we can take such a passage and use it as an invitation to someone to get saved. But don't expect me to run down the street chasing unsaved sinners. Don't expect me to plead with people as the pianist or the orchestra or the choir are using some kind of emotional blackmail to get people to come to the foot of the cross listen i went to too many concerts before i was saved i was a singer myself before i was saved i know how these people work i'm not saying they do it deliberately i'm not saying they do it to somehow deceive people or to manipulate people i'm not saying that but i'm simply saying this that you won't find anyone in scripture either testament using any kind of music 
of any kind to bring people to the Saviour. It's not necessary. Just preach the gospel and let the Holy Ghost do the rest. 21.8 But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. Now, look at the first two groups of people from verse 8. Fearful, unbelieving. So if you are not saved, like that chap yesterday, no thanks, bruv, I don't believe in God, then according to this piece of scripture, you are fearful. You are fearful because you won't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You are fearful as to what your peers would say about you if you were to become a Christian. Fearful, unbelieving, and abominable. So, when you think of the second death, which is the final death, you're going to have murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars burning alongside the fearful and the unbelieving. That nice old woman who lives in your street, that nice old man who lives in your street, that nice woman who gets in the bus every morning, that nice man who serves you at your local uh, Delaracassi or your local supermarket, that nice woman, that nice man who you sit next to on the train and yet isn't saved, is going to find themselves in hell for all of eternity with murderers, whoremongers and sorcerers. Just think about that for one moment if you will. Ordinary people, decent, upright people, it could be your local friend who is a part of the Rotary Club. And he stands outside his supermarket every Christmas. And I've seen those people shaking his bucket, shaking his can, trying to raise money for the Rotary Club, which feeds into Freemasonry, which is abomination to the Lord. It could be your local uh, shelter, your local Save the Whale, your local CND. In fact, yesterday I noticed a group from Shelter, a very... Uh, prominent pressure group in the UK and shelter if you don't know is a group set up for homeless people nothing wrong in supporting such a group but for some of those people they think it's going to bring them uh, favor with the Lord it's going to somehow result in them receiving brownie points with the Lord that's not how salvation works so my point is this anyone you know no matter how old they are no matter how good or upright, quote-unquote, they are, if they don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they are called the unbelieving and the fearful because they were too cowardly to bend the knee. They wouldn't receive Christ's offer of everlasting life. And I've spoken to so many people over the past 15 years, and I've heard almost every excuse imaginable under the sun. I'm a good man. I'm a good woman. My husband... Uh, goes to this church or my wife goes to that church or I've got a Bible at home or this or that and they're all the same they are cowards they are fearful and ultimately what sends you to hell is your unbelief that's the worst possible sin imaginable unbelief yes um, sins like lying murdering whoremongering is all wicked sorcery like doing drugs and also consulting clairvoyance, doing the tarot cards, all that stuff is wicked and idolatry, like worshipping Mary, Muhammad, or the mass. And yes, Muslims do worship Muhammad. You just try and criticize Muhammad sometime. They will go hysterical. They will just go crazy on you. They worship the man. 
and yet Muhammad would marry this little girl called Aisha when she was six and take her virginity when she was nine. What a great man. And he was, what, 54, 55? And Muslims think it's okay. Well, there's a term for such a person in the UK, and, of course, that term is a paedophile. And if you were to be caught doing such a thing, you would be put before a court, sentenced to probably 20 years in jail. And if you arrived in any of the UK jails as such a person, they would be looking out for you. And I'm speaking about fellow inmates. And if they could, they would kill you. All liars is pretty simple. If you just tell one lie, you are a liar by definition. And as a result, such people have their part forever in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. Going back to the point I made at the beginning of this message, how most of the earth, like 70% of the earth, is water. So if you were to turn that water into fire, you get some idea. And brimstone, which is a second and final death. So that's the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is that if you pass up this gift of salvation, you will pay for your sins in hell. Also, 21.8 is speaking about those people that were never saved to begin with. I know most Christians, unfortunately, think that you can lose your salvation, and they make a lot of noise about such being impossible. Of course, they don't believe they can lose their salvation, but you can lose your salvation. But these passages, 21.8, are not aimed at saved people. When a saved person sins and he slash she will, they are judged as a son of God or a daughter of God. But when an unsaved man or woman sins, they are judged as a sinner. There's a difference, and it's very important that we get that straight. Second death, final death, hellfire, and like I keep saying, and will continue to until I finish this message, which I guess will be another six more weeks, it's not too late. You can still be saved if you want to be saved. Let's keep reading on, please. Look at verse 9 from Revelation 21. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. So the Lamb has a wife, being the church. Jehovah has a wife, being Israel. Jehovah's gift to his wife is a new earth. Jesus' gift to the church is New Jerusalem. And that's what we are interested in, for those of us which are saved. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God and a light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal and had a wall great and high and had 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. So, one more time. New Jerusalem, church. New earth, Israel. And here, from verse 10, you've got this great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, like a gift, if you will, compared to that whore tied in with a city, tied in with a capital of the world. So Satan, one more time, has a church being Rome, whereas Jesus has a church and a place being New Jerusalem. And John is being carried away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. Much of what the Lord would preach about 
took place from high mountains, high spots, and showed me that great city, great in the sense of marvelous, great in the sense of unimaginable, the holy Jerusalem, not geographical Jerusalem, which if you were to jump on a plane, you could arrive at in six hours. This is holy Jerusalem coming down from a third heaven or a new heaven and a new earth. Having the glory of God, a bit, like the, the, uh, bit like the Shehina glory, and her light was like unto a stone most precious. Almighty God would say, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus Christ would say he was the light of the world, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high. So there was a wall to, on the one hand, keep people out, and on the other hand, to keep people in. It had 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. So 12 angels assigned to 12 gates. And I spent some time looking at angels from uh, chapters 2 and 3, which are assigned to the seven churches. So for those of us which are saved, when we meet in groups of around two or three, according to scripture, we have an angel which is assigned to us. And some people think that angel is like a guardian angel, perhaps, But that angel is A, assigned to us, and B, is able to behold our Father's face in heaven, which is a sombering thought, especially if you are out of fellowship with the Lord right now. And names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So Israel is beloved, and Paul told you that from the book of Romans, how they are greatly beloved. In fact, Daniel, when he got into a jam, would uh, be desperately praying and praying and praying and eventually an angel was sent to him and he was uh, told how greatly beloved he was and if you are born again you too are greatly beloved but Israel God's firstborn Israel God's elect people are going to be somehow affiliated if you will to New Jerusalem some people think that they will be able to enter New Jerusalem, and some people think that those of us which will be in New Jerusalem are going to be able to uh, walk about on the new earth. I don't know. I know one thing, that Christ is going to rule and reign on the new earth for a thousand years, and wherever he is, we're going to be right beside him. So it's more likely that we are going to go from New Jerusalem to new earth, and not necessarily uh, experience those from the new earth going into New Jerusalem. I guess the nearest they will get will be when they bring their gifts to the gates or when they approach the light, verses 23, 24, which I'll pick up next week. These are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So if you think of Jacob's 12 sons, I don't know whether or not his sons were saved. I hope they were, but I don't know. It may be that what the Lord does is he takes 12 people that came from the 12 tribes of Israel and they are part of the 24 from Revelation chapter 4. Uh, yeah, Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 speaks about 24 elders on 24 seats. And it could just be that what the Lord does is take, like I say, 12 of the best from each of the 12 tribes, and they represent Israel. I don't know. Some people might think that the Lord will allow Jacob's literal sons to sit with the Lamb up in a third heaven Revelation chapter 4. Possibly, I don't know. I know that when you read about such people from Genesis, some were better than others. Perhaps, I don't know. 
But what I do know is that Israel is very much at the forefront of this picture of worship, this picture of majesty, this picture of something something so sacred that we don't really understand it and we simply scratch the surface. Which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel? Thirteen on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. Very difficult to further expound that. Verse 14, and I will close. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So Christ chose himself twelve apostles, and it's pretty easy to work out who those twelve people are, but we get somewhat stuck when it comes to number twelve. Could it be Judas Iscariot? Unlikely. Could it be Matthias? Perhaps. Could it be the Apostle Paul? More likely. We don't know for sure. I know one thing, that Acts chapter 1, the apostles decided to have a meeting. And they decided to replace Judas. And they took it upon themselves to choose one or two men. And Matthias was chosen. And Matthias, after Acts chapter 1, is never mentioned again. Whereas seven chapters later, eight chapters later, the Apostle Paul arrives on the scene and completely turns the world upside down. He would write 14 epistles, if you give him Hebrews, and what he was shown, like the gospel of the grace of God, which John wasn't shown, and the rapture of the church explicitly, which Peter wasn't shown, would somehow, in my mind anyway, put him in the position, or allow him to be the 12th apostle, We don't know for sure, like I say, concerning the sons of Jacob. It could be that the Lord picks out 12 of the best from the 12 tribes and they represent redeemed Israel. I don't know, but for the 12 apostles of the Lamb, more likely that Paul is going to be apostle number 12. But because we don't know that for sure, it's best not to speculate. So verse 14 closes with the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And they are going to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt on the new earth. Because they were Jewish as well. You see, they have a double blessing. The apostles were Jewish. Saved Jews. So technically speaking, they can be on the new earth. And also up in New Jerusalem. But for those of us which are Gentile. For those of us which have been saved over the last 2000 plus years. We have no direct role to play on the new earth. The temple, which is built, um, Revelation Revelation 11, is for the Jews. And the Messiah will be very active during the uh, temple period, or active in the temple, which, like I say, goes up in Revelation 11 and beyond. I guess we are going to be more likely to be present in the sense of spectators. But to go beyond that is simply speculation. So just a quick recap, and I will close. 21.1 concerns a new heaven and a new earth, because the old heaven and the old earth has been done away with. Revelation 20, the unsaved wicked dead have been judged in outer space, no doubt naked in their filthy rags. They come into the world naked, and they are judged naked, and off they go into the lake of fire, which... It's going to burn forever. 
So the Lord is going to start all over again. You thought Eden was impressive. Wait till you see New Jerusalem. The first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. But you're going to have rivers. You're going to have streams in the New Jerusalem. But all of the Atlantic Ocean, all of the uh, Pacific Ocean, the English Channel, any uh, sea, any uh, part of the world that comes to your mind when it comes to oceans are going to be done away with. Also, that feeds back into Leviathan being a term for Satan. There's no more place for Satan to lurk. It'll be done away with. Two, John sees the holy city in contrast to Satan's unholy city. New Jerusalem, spiritual, not physical, although it will be physical when we see it, but now it's spiritual, coming down from God out of heaven. And that term, born of God, picture the new birth, is very similar to this piece of scripture. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the greatest gift that the Lord can give to his son. From our perspective, it's just good enough to be saved. From our perspective, it's good enough not to go to hell when we die. From our perspective, it's good enough just to know the Lord in a personal sense. But from the Lord's perspective, he wants to give us a city, a holy city. And three, John, once again, very much at the forefront of this very impressive and very revealing imagery. And he does a great job relaying it back to us. Here's a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. You can't get any closer to the Lord. This is as close as you will get to him. Verse 4, every tear that you ever shed or will shed will be wiped away because all things have passed away. Verse 5, right, for these words are true and faithful. This wasn't John's own private opinion. He was writing what he was told to write. The scriptures are inspired. The writers of the Holy Bible were inspired. But once they put their pens down, they ceased from being inspired. In fact, no one in scripture, once they wrote the scripture, was infallible or impeccable unlike what the Church of Rome would have you believe concerning the popes. This is a free gift, verse 6, and it's offered to anyone who is thirsty. Very similar to John chapter 4, when Christ spoke to the woman at the well. But most people will pass it up, most people will turn it down, and try and get to heaven their own way. Verse 7, he that overcometh, he that appropriates the atonement, he that is born again, he that receives this as a free gift, shall inherit all things, and I'll be his God, and he shall be my son. Partly picturing the millennial reign, but also going into eternity. Eight, one final time, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their parts in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. A throwback to chapter 20. Much revelation crosses over, its, uh, crosses over itself. Much revelation overlays itself. That's why you need to be careful when you read this piece of scripture and other parts that you don't get overly confused. 9, 10, 11, the best is yet to come. John has been shown New Jerusalem and he uses the description of crystals. 
jasper stones to try and explain its beauty, and yet even that doesn't really do it justice. The 12 tribes of Israel are going to be a part of this new Jerusalem, and there'll be three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And 14, and I will close now. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. So there's 12 parts to this setup. And in them, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Some people think that New Jerusalem is a cube-shaped object. Some people think it is a double pyramid. But I'm out of time, so we will close it there. And next week, pick it up in verse 15.